Sean Strickland keeps rolling along. The judges got some explaining to do. Welterweight has a new contender. And Brendan Allen continues to be a fighter that frustrates the ever-loving life out of me. It is Sunday, February 6th. I am E. Spencer Kite. UFC Vegas 47 is in the books. And this is the next day takeaways. Welcome, everybody, to the second episode. We did it. We, I, I said the first episode we were going to try to do this after every event. We had an event last night. We're back to talk about it today. UFC Vegas 47 in the books. A really entertaining card, in my opinion, from top to bottom. Plenty to talk about, so we're going to jump right into it. The main event, Sean Strickland just keeps moving forward. He is now 20-0, competing at middleweight. He is on a six-fight winning streak overall. Five consecutive victories since coming back from his two-year hiatus, goes out and gets a a split-decision victory over Jack Hermanson that shouldn't be a split-decision victory. We'll get to that in a little bit. To push himself forward in this division, continue doing so. I said going into this fight, and I thought going into this fight, that this is where we were going to see sort of... We were were going to learn really kind of who Sean Strickland is or, or the the ceiling for Sean Strickland. And I don't know that we necessarily learned the ceiling, but but we see that he is still that next level ahead. Jack Hermanson has been a guy that, you know, fits perfectly in that four through seven range, four through eight range in the middleweight division. Sean Strickland clearly deserves to be and should be ahead of that in the rankings after this performance goes out. Does what Sean Strickland does, works behind a very good jab, rolls with punches exceptionally well so he doesn't take a lot of punishment. He's got that gas tank where he's standing up throughout the the break in between rounds. Doesn't need a stool, doesn't need a lot of coaching, just wants to go back out there and punch people in the face some more. Continues to do that. Gets a clean victory. To me, I could see maybe two rounds going to Jack Hermanson, and so 48-47 Sean Strickland. But anything other than that felt incorrect to me um, felt incorrect to a lot of people felt incorrect to his head coach Eric Nixick who talked about it afterwards on Twitter and I understand Eric's frustration in, in in what he said of saying you know like yeah we still got the win but there needs to be some some oversight and there needs to be some accountability I agree but but like I said we'll touch on that in a minute looking at where Sean Strickland is now on that winning streak the thing I've been thinking about since the fight was okay What comes next? Where is he? This month is a big month for the division. We had this fight on Saturday. We have the championship fight next Saturday at UFC 271. We also have Derek Brunson and Jared Cannonier. We've got a bunch of fights coming up. And so this one felt pretty important in terms of setting a a marker for where Sean is in the division. There was some talk yesterday and, you know, as, as soon as fights end, it's okay, who does he fight next? And I saw a bunch of, well, maybe the loser of Brunson Cannoneer and maybe the loser of the championship fight if it's Rob and we don't get a trilogy fight. And to me, the only answer that makes sense is Marvin Vittori. I know they're friends. I know they've trained together in the past. Strickland has talked about it. They've, they've talked between the two of them about doing it. And if the money's right, they'll do it because that's who they are and what they do. And so beat the hell out of each other in the gym for free. Let's beat the hell out of each other on television for some money. To me, that is the right fight to make just because Marvin Vittori is coming off a victory. We know where he stands in the divisional hierarchy. And I don't really want to see whoever gets beaten in the Cannoneer-Brunson fight 
hustled in against somebody that's that's one of the few people moving forward in the division. And so, yes, a, a loss to Marvin Vittori doesn't really move Marvin Vittori forward, but I don't feel we're at a point where we're looking for Marvin Vittori to move forward. Whereas if you put him in there with Cannonier or Brunson, whoever comes away on the wrong side of things in that one, you're then putting him in there with somebody that already established they're, they're not going to be the number one contender. And so you're still not moving anyone forward. And to me, the process should always be about moving somebody forward. If you can't move both forward, move one person forward to where the other person doesn't lose that much ground. And that's why a fight with Marvin Vittori makes a lot of sense to me. It is a main event caliber fight. It is the great kind of third fight on a pay-per-view if you don't want it to go five, if you don't want it to be a five-round fight, if you want to bulk out a pay-per-view card somewhere down the line. Personally, I would like to see it be a five-round main event on one of these similar kind of fight night events so that we do get the full 25 minutes for them to sort things out and get a good read on, on where, you know, continue to try to figure out where Sean Strickland's ceiling is. Because if he goes out there and beats Marvin Vittori, in a five-round fight in a spot where against everybody but Izzy, Marvin Vittori has had a lot of success. That tells you something else about Sean Strickland. That puts him in the position to challenge for the championship later in the year. And if he can't, then we, we learn some other information, and that's important. And so for me, I hope that's how that comes together. This was a great performance. I don't think it does anything to Jack Hermanson in terms of changing the way we look at him or changing how we feel about him. I felt going into this that he was kind of perfectly situated in that old Michael Bisping role before Bisping won the title, in that Jeremy Stevens role before Jeremy Stevens went on a slide and, and departed the UFC, where they're going to beat the up-and-coming guys that aren't quite ready to be those top 10 talents or those top 5 talents, but they're going to be a step behind the truly elite contenders. And so I think that's what we saw. It, it was another reminder of that. I think it gave us some a little bit more clarity about how the division shakes out, how everything lines up. And that's important as we go into next weekend where we get two very important fights. And, and we'll come away from this month, I think, with a very good picture and a very good understanding of how to match people up in the middleweight division going forward. It's not the deepest division. It's not the most competitive division, as my friend Sean, Sean Sheehan from Severe MMA tends to think about it. It's not a great division. But we're getting some interesting opportunities this month to see where people line up. And as much as most people probably aren't excited about it, I certainly am. Mentioned that we have some scoring stuff to talk about. Obviously, the main event, split decision. I mean, first and foremost, anytime we get into scoring discussions, I will always start off with the caveat, with the acknowledgement that judging mixed martial arts fights is difficult. Um, judging them live is actually even more difficult than judging them from home or from press row or anything like that because we have the benefit of all kinds of different screens, all kinds of different angles. We don't have obstructed views and we're getting information that you don't get when you're just sitting there watching the fight live. We hear the commentary so we know a little bit more what landed and what didn't. We know about you know, submission setups or what's happening in some of these grappling exchanges where, depending on where you are, things can be really obstructed and you can have no real good sight lines of what's happening. 
That's not to say, that's not to excuse wonky scorecards, bad scorecards, whatever you want to call them. But it puts a little bit of understanding out there. And, and I hope people will, will take that for what it is. Because they're, you know, I will probably go back in the next couple of days, rewatch the main event, just to get a, just to get a read for how Sal D'Amato scored the fight 48-47 for Jack Hermanson. I know that in looking at the scorecards, um, he wasn't alone in scoring the third round for Jack Hermanson. I believe he was alone in scoring the, the fifth round for Jack Hermanson. And so it's interesting, right? If you give him one, three, and five, that's how you get to 48-47 for Jack Hermanson. I will watch it back to find out and, and kind of get a second read of things. And I will certainly mention it at some point during the week this week, either just in a quick set of tweets or something like that. Probably not a post because we're jumping into UFC 271. The fight I really want to touch on, though, is the co-main event. Nick Maximov gets a victory over Punaheli Soriano. Split decision, 29-28 for either guy, and then Douglas Crosby, 30-27 for Nick Maximov as sort of the deciding judge. For me, and I, I said it after the fight, I had it 29-28 Soriano. That is my assessment from watching it here based on the criteria as I understand it. I have gone through the command course with John McCarthy, so I have actually learned some of this stuff and trained some of this stuff. So it's not coming completely just sub subjectively. I have a little bit of understanding and, and expertise in this. And for me, it comes down to damage. And that's the piece of the criteria that is talked about and is supposed to be valued. And so every time... We talk about takedowns and control time and things like that. They're certainly important in terms of dictating location of the fight, dictating tempo of the fight, and, and what your opponent is able to do. But when you're not doing anything much effectively with them, so in, in Nick Maximov's case, they're not high amplitude takedowns, so there's no impact being created when he's taking when he's taking Soriano to the canvas. He didn't advance positions very much. He did take the back in the first. Certainly count some of that where he's threatening with the submission and forcing Puna to be super defensive and fend off that that choke attempt. But for the most part in the second and third rounds, he's dragging him to the canvas. He's holding on to a waist lock. There's a little bit of a scramble, but but he's not, you know, moving to side control. He's not putting him on the ground and, and moving into mount or anything like that. And then there's no effective offense when they're down there. There's no effect, effective grappling when they're down there. There weren't any submission attempts. There's not a lot of offense coming. And by contrast, we saw Punaheli Soriano throwing a lot more, landing some heavy shots in all three rounds. And for me, as much as Maximov is piling up takedown attempts and successful takedowns for that matter... It's about that damage piece. It's about those secondary pieces to that primary thing that we're looking at. So when we're looking at scoring, it's effective grappling or striking. or striking. And for me throughout, Soriano's striking was far more effective and impactful than Maximov's grappling was. I gave Nick the third round because Puna was clearly dealing with some injury issues or a knee issue, getting tired, didn't land that much effective offense. Although I will say he did land the greater significant strikes, the more significant strikes. 
But in the first and second, to me, it they're clearly rounds for Puna Soriano because every time he's landing something heavy, it's forcing Nick Maximov to either reset or shoot that takedown. And as much as he is a grappler that wants to get this fight to the ground, some of those takedown attempts are to avoid being in positions where he's standing with Puno, Puno Soriano and getting lit up. And that stuff matters. I had somebody tweet me yesterday in the midst of kind of talking about the scoring of this fight, saying, just because he made him bleed doesn't mean he won the round. And I countered by saying, absolutely. But the fact that he made him bleed means he landed something of value. He landed an impact strike. And it was that knee in the first round. That it's it's crazy to me that we see fights that are super close until the last 10 seconds and somebody gets dropped and we all instinctively know, okay, that wins the round or, or that should win the round. But when it happens in the middle of a round and we see that big decisive blow happen in the middle of a round, we have a harder time either remembering it or giving it the value that it deserves. And for me, that shot in the first that he lands that opens up the cut that causes the bleeding for Nick Maximov. The fact that he defended the takedown and, and the choke attempt very well and landed shots throughout and then did much of the same in the second. Get Soriano a 29-28 for me, but that's just me. That's the other part of this. We don't have to agree. This stuff is subjective. If you disagree with me, that's cool. I'm, I'm happy to have the conversations, discuss it out, listen to your side as long as you're willing to listen to mine. That isn't how Twitter works, of course, most of the time. And so we just kind of moved on for it. I do want to shout out, again, second time on this pod, my guy Sean Sheehan from Severe MMA, who said that was the most anti-Diaz performance from a Diaz Academy representative. That is normally a fight, as, as he correctly stated, that Nathan Diaz and Nick Diaz would be shouting that Puna Haley Soriano won far and away because all the other guy did was wrestle and do nothing and just laid there and hug him. But of course, Maximov is their guy, so they're up clapping and cheering and, and excited for it. But it was a very ironic performance for a guy that is is then jumping on the mic and shouting out to 209. We're going to see where these guys go. I'm, again, I'm not super high on Nick Maximov. I do appreciate the grappling that he has. I do appreciate the wrestling that he has. But until he's able to put more to it, until he's able to build on it and turn it into more effective grappling and wrestling, I think he's limited. He is 24 years old, undefeated, trains with seasoned guys in, in Nick and Nathan, and has the potential to grow. But it's going to be interesting to me when he gets in there with guys that are a little more active, that are a little more dangerous than Punahele Soriano is, who I still think is a, a promising guy in the middle of that division, just in terms of having the power and having... We saw some stuff from him that I don't think people understood. He, he showed some good wrestling defense. He showed some good takedown defense and scrambling ability. And so I think we're going to... I'm still on the wait and see with Nick Maximov. I try not to get wrapped up in, you know, who who people train with necessarily as as just a reason to be excited for them. So I want to see what he can show me against somebody else next time out before I start kind of getting all the way on the bandwagon. One bandwagon I am absolutely on and feel like I've been ready to like lead the bus for a while is Shavkat Rachmanov, who goes out and gets a spinning hook kick into vicious ground and pound knockout win over Carlston Harris in the 
third to last fight. This to me, we talked about it on the Severe Preview Show, should have been the co-main event. This was the opportunity to showcase a guy in Shavkat Rachmanov who is undefeated, a rising star in this division, one of the best prospects in the whole UFC, as I wrote in, in Fighters on the Rise this week over at the UFC website. Pushes it to 15-0, pushes it to 3-0 in the UFC with three finishes. Saw a little cartoon graphic from Satanta Sports that his manager, Syat, retweeted after the performance of him knocking, literally knocking on the door, marked top 15. I think that's where he is. I've seen some talk of 15-0 versus 15-0, which would be Rachmanov against Sean Brady. I would absolutely welcome that fight. I don't think it's going to happen. I think it will be a little bit further down the line for Rachmanov than Sean Brady, who's coming off that very good gutsy win over Michael Chiesa. But I want to see it. He's a guy that is at a point where if we're going to hustle and hype Hamza Chemaev the way that we have, let's hustle and hype Shavkat Rachmanov in a similar fashion because he is the goods. He has the full arsenal. He has the complete skill set. There's no reason to slow play this any longer. Get him in there, if not against the top 15 opponent, against somebody that's just on the outside of it, and let's see just how far he can keep taking this. It's similar to Chemayev. It's similar even to Sean Strickland in the, until we know where that ceiling sits. And the way we figure that out is we see them lose, we see them struggle, we see something that we haven't seen yet, or of late in the case of Sean Strickland, Let's just keep pushing it forward. We're in a spot where, you know, Kamaru Usman is, is running through the guys at the top of the division. So let's see if we can't bring some more guys like Brady, like Chemaev, like Rachmanov up the ranks to get them in a position where maybe they are, if not by the end of this year, then by the first half of next year, ready to potentially challenge for the title. Or we know where they stand and, and we can figure that part out. They can have their stumble and regroup or whatever the case may be. But get this dude a fight. The other part of it for me, and we talked about it, and I'm shouting out the Severe Boys a lot because I had a great time doing their show last Thursday. We'll do it again this Thursday ahead of UFC 271. We talked about this a lot. This is one of those fights. This is one of those fighters that if you weren't paying attention and you weren't excited before this for what Shavkat Rachmanov can do and who he might be in this division then to me, that's not on the UFC, that's not on anyone other than you, and if you're media, that's on you not paying attention. Because we know how good Alex Oliveira is, and Rachmanov went out in his de debut and ran through the Brazilian Cowboy. Goes out and follows it up with a victory, a second round submission finish of Michel Prezeris, who is another guy that when you look at his resume, we know how good he is. And so if you can't parse out fighters like that, even if, and, and I agree, there are loads of fights, there's a lot always going on, and it becomes difficult sometimes to keep track of everybody. But if you can't identify the best performances and the true prospects and the stuff that really stands out because you know the quality of the opponent and you know the difficulty of the performance that you saw or the skill involved in the performance that you saw to where you're signaling people to pay attention to these individual athletes, however many it is, then that's on you and no one else. That's not on the UFC for not positioning him correctly 
or promoting him correctly because he's here, he's on this fight card, and you have an opportunity to see him. I wrote about him going into the week, and it's not just about blowing myself up and saying, oh, look, I wrote about him. But that is the UFC website. And if you want to know going into every week who to pay attention to, what each matchup looks like, that site has you covered. I write a fight-by-fight -fight preview that talks about every fight on the card and will give you a little nugget on every person. I write fighters on the rise so that you know about three athletes that I think you should pay attention to because maybe they have some promise and some upside and are, and are somebody you should pay attention to going forward. And so if the loudest voices in this sport, if the people with the biggest platforms aren't talking about them and are talking about how poor these cards are and I don't know anybody and there's nothing to really pay attention to, that's their mistake. That's them not paying attention enough. That's them not doing the work that needs to be done to pass the information on to the consumer, on to the viewer, so that you know who this guy is, so that nobody suddenly comes along and goes, this guy came out of nowhere. Because I hate to break it to everybody, but no one comes out of nowhere. We are in an era where it is easier than ever before to find out information about these athletes, be it through Wikipedia or Tapology or SureDog or Fight Pass to look at their old fights or YouTube or whatever it may be, or even Twitter just reaching out to smarter people than me that know more about these newcomers to the to the promotion, people that follow all of the regional promotions and can give you the goods. The information is out there. And if you choose to not consume it, if you don't seek it out, that's your fault, not anybody else's. Last one on the main card I want to touch on is, is Brendan Allen going out and getting a, a good second-round submission win over Sam Alvey. Three days' notice, so shout-out to BA for getting that done up a division at light heavyweight. That's the piece that I'm interested in, and I, I tweeted it out after the fight. So Brendan Allen is normally a middleweight. Every time that he's put together a couple of victories, he's run into somebody where he's been knocked back. First guy to do that was Sean Strickland, who we see is is now kind of a top five fighter and, and in the mix. So that makes that loss feel and look a little better. Second guy to do it is Chris Curtis, who's on a nice little run and might be a top 15, top 10, maybe even top five fighter. We're going to find that out this year as he continues to get that push forward. And so not the worst loss in the world. But in watching Brendan Allen in there with Sam Alvey, I got thinking, is, is Brendan Allen maybe a guy that should fight at 205? Because he took that left hand from Sam Alvey better than he's taken shots at middleweight. And I do feel that that not cutting weight has a little bit of impact for that. And then in terms of the things that he does really well and the positives and the strengths that he has versus maybe some of the demerits of fighting it at light heavyweight for Brendan Allen, I think there's more positives than there are negatives. He'd be a little undersized. He'd be a little out-muscled right now against some 205ers. But he's going to be faster. And he's got a, a nice, diverse kind of arsenal of skills that we saw on Saturday. Hands are getting a little better. Good kicks to all levels. Good grappling, good submission game. Very kind of opportunistic guy. And, and a good nose for the finish when he gets somebody in a position that he can chase that finish. And so I just kind of wonder, like, is is he somebody that maybe benefits from not doing that weight cut and, and fighting it at 205? And I should have looked it up. I don't know exactly what he weighed in at. 
on Friday for this fight. But like, if that opportunity is there and it's a chance for him to a probably compete a little more often because he doesn't have to go through and do these big bulk camps where he's dropping a, a bunch of pounds to get down to 85. And you look at, you look at 205. It's not like that landscape. It's not like that division is, is loaded with talent. Maybe there's an opportunity for him to move forward and kind of reset from a couple of those losses at 85 that are aging well, that are looking better as those two guys that have beaten him continue to progress up the ladder and go down or go up, sorry, and just not put his body through as much, have a few different advantages that he doesn't carry at middleweight and see if he can't put something together because he looked good against Sam Alvey. He looked better. Like when that left hand landed, I thought, oh great, here's Brendan Allen going to get clipped and hurt and Sam Alvey's going to get a victory and chaos is going to reign, which I would have loved. It would have been awesome to see, but you know, and he didn't, that didn't happen. He wore it pretty well. He took the moment to reset, gathered his wits, gets back on the offensive, has a great performance overall, especially when you consider it's three days notice. So I might be more interested in Brendan Allen fighting at light heavyweight than I am at middleweight going forward. I do want, like, I do want him to not stop with the, Okay, yeah, I do want him to stop with the excuses. I don't want to hear that there was a lot going on behind the scenes going into the Chris Curtis fight. Your job is to be ready and to perform and to show up. And when you can't do it, just move on from it. I don't need to hear anything else. He's done that with both of his losses. I love BA. He's a great kid. I've had a lot of time for him and talked to him a bunch throughout this journey. But just stop with the, this is what was happening. And it's not an excuse. It's an explanation. I understand. And there are always explanations, but sometimes... Just put it behind you, move forward, leave it alone, because it just makes it sound like you're, you know, there, there's always a reason for what went wrong, but we never hear about all those same distractions or complications after what went right. So just leave it be, keep it moving forward. This was a good win. Think about 205. It's it's interesting. I think it's interesting for him. Want to run through the rest of the card real quick just to just to kind of touch on everybody else. Brian Battle, gutsy performance, gets the victory in the unofficial Tough 29 uh, middleweight finale. Trayshawn Gore is a guy, and I've seen a couple people talk about this, talked about as a big power guy, but he hasn't finished anybody. May end up being the better prospect or the better fighter of the two down the road. But until Trey figures out how to use his power and explosiveness and athleticism more efficiently, more effectively, he's always going to lose to guys like Brian Battle that are just able to put volume out there, able to deal with your power as best as they can, as we saw on Saturday night, and just offer more than you do. And that's what happened in that fight. Treshawn Gore is, is clearly a powerful, interesting prospect, but go out there and prove it. Go out there and and put that those weapons that you have and those tools that you have to use because you're not going to one-shot people in the UFC very often. It may happen every once in a while. Landed some big shots on Brian Battle, but clearly didn't put him down, and it kind of just put him in a position where we get out in the third round and Brian Battle can do more than Treshawn Gore, does more than Treshawn Gore, and gets the victory. Opening fight of the main card, I mean, just... I'm um, um, standing ovation here for Julian Arosa and Steven Peterson, two absolute lunatics that go out there and beat the ever ever loving shit out of one another. Um, this is one of those fights. I said it in the week. I said it in t about last night. That's up on the site now. Um, 
if you didn't know this was going to be an absolutely bonkers, wildly entertaining fight, it's another case of you not paying attention. Julian Rosa is allergic to being in boring fights. Steven Peterson generally is in entertaining fights, but is also, as we saw again on Saturday, impossible to put away. Never been finished in the UFC and has been in some wars. So this played out the way that anybody that knew about these two gentlemen knew it was going to play out. And so while it's not a contender fight, while it's not big names, everyone knew this was going to be a fight of the year contender going in. And so if you didn't, or if the people you listened to didn't, then that's on them, not on anybody else. Change up who you're listening to. Follow other people. Get advice from other people. Because I knew this was going to be awesome. Everybody that I know, that I listen to, that I follow, knew this was going to be awesome. Hats off to those two dudes. Shout out to Juicy J for getting $100,000 for that because Steven Peterson missed weight for a second time. Just a bonkers fight. Terrific. Go watch it if you didn't watch it. John Castaneda gets a good win. A very impressive win to me. Just a nice, technical, veteran, smart performance. Pressuring Miles Johns making a move backwards the whole time, which taxes that gas tank, gets the finish. Great performance from a guy that admittedly I underrated a little bit going into this one. Much better effort than I thought he was going to be able to deliver against Miles John, who, Johns, who had looked good in his last two fights. Similarly, Hakeem Dawadu, Canada stand-up, showed up to Calgary, goes out and has the technical Hakeem Dawadu fight that we are used to seeing from him when guys are willing to engage on the feet with him. The bodywork is always my favorite with Hakeem. The way he dips into that left hand to the midsection and, and targeting that liver is just a thing of beauty. It is a chef's kiss. Was surprised that Trezano was willing to stand with him as much as he was and didn't look to clinch and didn't look to grapple more. And it went the way these things go when you do that with Hakeem Dawadu, who is a super technical, super experienced striker. Now kind of steadies himself just outside the top 15 in that division. And it's going to be interesting to see who he gets matched with next. I think it should be one of those veteran guys in the Andre Feely kind of mold just to see if we can get forward. I wouldn't be mad if it's somebody in the lower third of the top 15 either. Give him a chance to see what's there. It's always going to be a matter to me of can he defend takedowns? Can he keep fights standing? If Hakeem can dictate where fights take place going forward, he is going to be somebody that continues to have performances like this and be a pain in the ass for anybody that's trying to use him as a stepping stone going forward. Outside of that debut loss to Danny Henry, which was not a fluke, but he got caught, he got choked out, it happens. He then rattled off five straight wins. The only guy to beat him since is Mobstar Iloyev, who everybody is losing to. This guy's beating everybody, and so... To me, it's, it's one of those ones that I didn't want to put too much on that loss going into this fight. The result on Saturday showed me that I was correct in that assessment. Keen bounces back, gets a nice victory, gets moving forward again. Chidi and Jokowani, there's not a lot to say about a 16-second debut knockout win, but holy crap, man. Like This is why I said going in that Chidi's a different kind of contender series graduate. Like as much as everyone wants to rag on some of these contender series graduates, here's a guy that is headlined in Bellator and co-mained in Bellator a bunch of times, has a wealth of experience and goes out and just absolutely lamps Mark andre Barrio right out of the gate. 16-second win, 
throws him right into the thick of the chase at middleweight, which, you know, who knows where that lands him, who that lands him next. Wouldn't mind seeing him against Brendan Allen, just they're on the same timelines. Like, that's easy to easy to make happen. Let's see what happens there. But a great performance from Chidi. Really cool to see him give it up to his brother, Anthony and Jokuani. Afterwards, a former WEC and UFC guy. Um, really cool to see. Happy to see Chidi get this opportunity. Great performance in his debut. Alexis Davis gets a good win over Yulia Stolyarenko. Uh, it felt like, and I said it during the fight, that first round really, really felt like it was going to be a fuck around and find out kind of thing for Alexis Davis, where she was going to get caught in that armbar. And Stolyarenko just kept hunting and just kept hunting and Davis kept leaving her arms in there. She is a black belt in both Brazilian and Japanese jiu-jitsu, so she defended well. She escaped it a couple of times, did enough to get it done. Stolyarenko moves to 0-4 in the UFC. She is, to me, a absolute quad A fighter. She can go and be the best bantamweight in Bellator, but she just doesn't quite have it at the UFC level. There are fights she could certainly win, and maybe the UFC gives her a chance in one of those coming up after this. This is against a a 37-year-old veteran who has been in there with absolute killers, fought for the title in the past. And so maybe you get one more chance to prove it against somebody a little further down in the rankings, coming off a couple of losses that isn't as experienced as Alexis Davis. Davis steadies herself. She is she is a perfect presence in the middle of that bantamweight division to pair up against fighters kind of in the same vein that she has fought over the last couple of years since or the last year since coming back to this division. The Sabina Mazos, the Yulia Stolyarenkos, anybody moving up. I mean, Julia Avalas jumps out as a name to me that you put her in there with and you just see where where things shake out. Yailton Almeida, absolutely dominant performance. Another one of those contender series guys. I've been taking the wait and see approach for the most part with the season five graduates, just because a lot of them had either limited experience or a lot of fights against people that, you know, were clearly overmatched. He goes out and runs through Danilo Marquez I understand Marquez's objection at the end of the fight when the stoppage occurs that not a lot of those blows are coming through, but it didn't matter. He had nowhere to go. He was like, yes, he's covering up, but he had nowhere to go. That was going to continue for the remaining two minutes. And rather than let that happen, the fight was stopped. I have no problem with it. Almeida took zero damage. So if he wants to fight in two weeks, the next time the UFC is is back at the apex, make it happen. Let me see more of this guy. I wasn't sold going in. I'm not all the way sold, but I'm kind of in escrow with him right now. Where, let me see one more. Let me look at it one more time at a different time of night. See how the light hits everything. And 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 if it looks as good, then I'll be sold and then I'll be all in. Phil Rowe goes out, gets his second straight win. I'll be honest, a frustrating performance for me because we talk all the way into the fight that Phil Rowe's got this giant reach that he absolutely does. And then he doesn't kind of use it. He's a guy to me that needs to go and just watch a whole bunch of Neil Magny tape and basically do his best Neil Magny impression every time he's out there. Get on your bike, work behind that jab, learn up that jab, educate that jab, use it because it's super effective. We saw it. We saw it on Saturday. As soon as he let go with his hands and kept Jason Witt at distance where he can against just about everybody in the division... He's super effective and gets the finish. So I know he's going through a lot. I know there's a lot happening for him outside the cage. His mother's battling cancer. So thoughts and prayers to Phil Rowe and his family and his mother through their trials. 
This is a good win. It's a second straight win. It gets him moving forward. Interested to see who it is next. Interested to see if he can continue to build on what he's doing. Use the jab. Use the reach. Use the length. It is your friend. In the opener, Malcolm Gordon goes out, gets a TKO victory over Dennis Bondar, whose elbow gives out um, just over a minute into the fight. Listen, the, the takedown into the submission attempt, in my opinion, certainly had something to do with it. Bondar was one of those guys, and I said it going in, I said it through the week, that when you look at who he fought, it, it was one of those I didn't understand why he was such a massive favorite. He hadn't fought anybody that we know that has any real reputation, any real anything behind him. And so in fights like that, I'm always going to favor the kind of more veteran guy, even when the performances haven't been great, as the first two weren't for Malcolm Gordon. And even that victory against Francisco Figueredo started getting a little shaky towards the end. But he goes out, he looks crisp right out of the gate, lands a right hand that makes Bondar want to shoot, gets into a scramble, gets into the submission attempt, and then gets the victory when Bondar goes to post and his elbow gives way. Two straight wins for Malcolm Gordon, Team Tompkins, Mark Hominick in his corner, as I said on Saturday, I'm always going to rep for those guys a little bit because that's people that that I've known throughout my career and that were there for me a lot early on to help me get started. So good to see Malcolm X get another victory and, and move forward, which brings us through that card. Looking ahead to, to the week ahead, as I said, and as we've talked about throughout, UFC 271 on tap, Houston's Toyota Center on Saturday, middleweight championship rematch, Israel Adesanya, Robert Whitaker. Derek Lewis, Taitu Ivasa, Jared Cannonier, Jarek Brunson, as we talked about. A few other ones of note. Last year's Rookie of the Year, Casey O'Neill coming back to face Roxanne Modafari in what will be her retirement bout. Cool middle, or sorry, cool flyweight fight between Alex Perez and Matt Schnell. They tried to make it a couple of times last year. Couldn't get it together. Both top 10 guys. Definitely interested to see how that one plays out. William Knight returning on short notice. Alexander Hernandez and Hanato Moicano facing off at lightweight on the early prelims. Uh, Douglas Silva returning. He's a guy that has a better record than you than you maybe understand. We'll talk about him on Wednesday in, in one question for sure. And then Mike Diamond, Mike Matheta, uh, Blood Diamond is, is what he wants to be known as. Member of the City Kickboxing crew fighting in the opening bout of the night against Jeremiah Wells. All the Anzac people that I follow, all the folks from, you know, Australia, New Zealand that are plugged in have been telling me for about a year now about Blood Diamond. So I'm excited. I hope you're excited. That's it for this week. We will be back. We're, we're into eight weeks in a row now of UFC events on Saturday, which means hopefully eight weeks in a row of me on this microphone on Sunday, taping the next day takeaways. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting subscriber. Please think about subscribing. It helps me continue to put this stuff out. Helps me be able to keep doing what I'm doing. If not, just check it out. Give me your feedback. Hit me up. Love me, hate me, whatever. I appreciate you anyway. Hope it's a great week for you. Can't wait to talk to you next Sunday. And as always, be good to one another.